But first, we start with the musical chairs going on in Ottawa. Yesterday, the federal Green Party, they used to have three MPs. They've just only got two now. After uh, Green Party MP Jenica Atwin jumped ship, she crossed the floor to join Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Mike LeCouture. With this move, the Green Party loses one-third of its caucus, and someone party insiders say could have represented the future of the Green movement. I'm Jenica. I'm from Fredericton, and I have the same priorities and the same values that I've always had. Jenica Atwin says she's the same MP, but now she has very different political stripes. The rising star of the Greens is leaving behind a party in turmoil with a leader who still doesn't have a seat in the House of Commons. There will have to be a lot of soul-searching done within the party to see why Jenica felt this was her only course of action. And that soul-searching will include how internal divisions have become very public recently. Last month, when the Green Party had called for de-escalation in the Middle East and a return to dialogue, in a tweet, Atwin labeled her leader's statement as totally inadequate saying she stood with Palestinians and called for an end to apartheid. I mentioned distraction. It's been really difficult to focus on the important work that needs to be done on behalf of my constituents, um, so it certainly has played a role. The longtime Liberal who helped announce Atwin's defection says the party is welcoming her and her views with open arms. In the Liberal caucus, uh, there is enormous room for respectful conversation, for differences of opinion. Late Thursday, Green Party leader Annamie Paul expressed disappointment at Atwin's departure, but doesn't believe it's a reflection on her leadership. She wished me well, that she hoped that uh, we would remain friends, and so I will take her at her word that this is a decision she took for other reasons. But the timing of this couldn't be worse for the Greens. The party is losing its star MP while planning for the possibility of a fall election. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the Green Party leader there. Oh, hope we're still friends. Yeah, right. Yeah, some friends. Friends like that, you won't need many enemies there. So you've got the Green Party MP crossing the floor there, joining the Liberals. Yeah, we haven't. This is not the first time we've seen this type of uh, political hokey pokey going on. But man, imagine how you feel down there in Fredericton if you voted for the Green Party and you voted for this MP, and then she turns around and joins the Liberals. You must be feeling pretty betrayed this morning. Let's discuss now with my guest, David Mosscrop, political scientist, University of Ottawa. He's author of the book, Too Dumb for Democracy, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thanks for coming on. Absolutely, my pleasure. I should say I've left the University of Ottawa. Actually, I've crossed oh. the floor oh, you've crossed into <laughs> full-time freelancing, and and now I'm a, an independent. As in fact, as that one probably should be, uh, the Liberals <laughs> probably wouldn't have me. So here I am. Oh well, thank you for that, David. Okay, <laughs> um, let's talk about this move here now. I mean, you know. I, we've seen a lot of this kind of thing. We're used to it in BC. We've seen some prominent examples. David Emerson famously comes to mind here in BC. People are absolutely furious when he left the Liberal Party, went over to Stephen Harper's Conservatives. But your thoughts on this? I mean, you know, isn't this a betrayal of the people who voted for? Her? Well, yes and no. I mean, it, it, if you vote based on party, which a lot of people do, let's be honest, uh, you probably do feel betrayed, and I understand that. That said, uh, in, in the case of, of this MP, there was an advisor to the leader who said, we're going to work to defeat you. 
I would have a hard time sticking around in that party after that. And I think most people would. And I don't blame the MP. I blame the dysfunction of the Green Party. I mean, at some point, you've got to exercise your individual judgment to say, can I, in good faith, sit with this party, which has become inconsistent with what I believe or an inhospitable place for me or whatever it might be. We want our MPs to use their judgment. We don't, them, we don't want them to be seat warmers. The problematic bit for me was crossing to the liberals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who, yeah. Right? That's a different thing. Like, sitting as an MP is one thing. Crossing to the liberals makes it look opportunistic, especially since she routinely disagrees with them on core, uh, on core issues. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons she said that she did this was that she disagreed with Green Party leader Anami Paul and her stance on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And I guess she thought that, you know, the party was being too supportive of Israel and she was very pro, pro-Palestinian. And uh, this happened after uh, Anime Paul, the Green Party leader, after the violence, recent violence in the region, said the Green Party calls for uh, de-escalation and a return to dialogue in the region. And she said that was not good enough. And she she basically she accused uh, Israel of apartheid and she stands with Palestine. But I mean, like you go over to the liberals now. I mean, basically, the Green Party position is very similar to Justin Trudeau's position on Israel. Is it not? With one important, with one important difference. Yeah. The Green Party doesn't send Israel military and financial aid. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> so, weapons. Like, I mean, I, you know, the, the liberal government is far closer to Israel than the Green Party is. That's my point. That's my yeah, point. Yeah, and, and it's inconsistent. And so that's what makes it look opportunistic and cynical. You know, I, right. I, I sort of have this pie-in-the-sky idea that MPs should be stronger vis-a-vis the leadership they should stand up they should think for themselves uh this at four crossings sometimes represent that but other times they look like this and they look awfully off cynical and opportunistic here's another one that jumped out at me i mean she says one of her big issues is the trans mountain pipeline oh she's very opposed to that pipeline oh it's so terrible and now she's joining a liberal government that bought the pipeline and approved it i'm like what and then she said yesterday, oh, I'm really against fracking. Oh, yeah, I'm really opposed to fracking. What? I mean, she goes to a government that supports fracking in the LNG industry. This does not make any sense, what she's done here. No, it's inconsistent. And the, the NDP typically doesn't take four crossers. So I have no idea what the internal decision making was on any party. I mean, I'm, I'm just observing this like everybody else. But if, if it were me and I held those positions, the liberals would not be the party that I would join. Well, yeah. It's just inconsistent. Um, I, I will say that she has a pretty good chance of holding her seat as a liberal in Fredericton, even even with the floor crossing, however, ahead of an election. So it it, it looks a little, again, it looks cynical, and, and I think people have a right to, to be offended by that. But again, I, in principle, I support floor crossing because I wanted to de-emphasize leaders and parties, but this isn't really a case that supports how can you <laughs> how can you david how can you support floor crossing in principle when it's a totally unprincipled thing to do i mean you know the people send you to ottawa they vote for the party you represent they believe that you're going to go there and, and do what you said and support the policies that you promised on the campaign trail you turn around and stab them in the back and join a different party what's principled about that well the idea is i mean you you can do that you can support a practice, but oppose individual instances of that practice, right? I mean, that you can support all kinds of things, that, and then say, well, this is not a, an instance of that that I that I think is representative of what it ought, ought to be the case. And this is one of those cases. 
But the idea is we elect members of parliament to exercise their judgment and we elect them as individuals and they either support the party and the government or they don't. If they don't support that party or government anymore for any number of reasons, I wouldn't want them sitting there still being hypocrites. I would want them to, to leave. I would prefer they became independent. Yeah. But yeah, that, I mean, they should that's do, an important part of it. They but, should do what jo- Jody Wilson-Raybould did. I mean, when she famously split with Trudeau there over SNC-Lavalin, I mean, every single party in the House of Commons was saying, come on over to our side, cross the floor. And I'm sure she was probably maybe tempted to do that, but... At the end of the day, she said, "No, I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to sit as an independent instead." And guess what? She got reelected. The, the voters rewarded her for a principled position. Yeah, it was right? an integrity move. Yeah, uh, and I think that that's the way to do it. I really do. And especially if you're going to cross to the governing side, right? Because I mean, it, it looks uh, doubly. In the case of Emerson, he ended up in the cabinet, right? Right. And I think a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> we're deeply offended by that because it's a different sort of thing. And uh, so, so there are details involved. But the Jody Wilson-Raybould okay. move was an integrity move. And, and I think that a lot of folks respected her for that because she couldn't in good conscience right. uh, sit with that party anymore, right? We wouldn't want our MPs to check their, their judgment at the door when they enter the House of Commons. That doesn't leave us any better off. It leaves us with a bunch of seat warmers. David, uh, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it a lot. Always my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about mandatory vaccination now in long-term care facilities. BC's top doctor says the province is considering just that, mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for workers in long-term care homes. Other measures also being considered to keep residents and staff safe in long-term care. This is a campaign that is gaining ground across Canada, certainly here in British Columbia. Have a listen to this. This is... Isabel McKenzie here, British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors, talking about mandatory vaccination in long-term care. Whether or not it can be, I think, is a question that um, may ultimately be decided through either courts or arbitration. Whether or not it should be, absolutely, it, it should be mandatory. It should be what we call a bona fide occupational requirement that you're vaccinated for COVID-19 in order to work in long-term care. Okay, Isabel McKenzie there, BC Seniors Advocate, talking to Simi Sarah there. She supports mandatory vaccines in long-term care. Let's discuss now with my guest, Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, former health minister here in British Columbia. Very pleased to welcome him back. Terry, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Always a pleasure. Okay, where do you stand on this one? Mandatory vaccines in long-term care, yes or no? Absolutely. Uh, We've been calling for some form of uh, policy around vaccination and long-term care for for quite a while. We've seen Quebec, for instance, uh, bring in legislation that requires mandatory vaccination or uh, three times a week rapid testing. In Ontario, it's either mandatory vaccination, and if you uh, don't take the vaccine, you have to enroll in a vaccine education uh, course. So, you know, lots of uh, ways of of moving people uh, into making a decision to take the vaccine, which, of course, in the most vulnerable environment for COVID, uh, you know, you can't get any more vulnerable than long-term care. Okay, is it legal? Like, do you expect if they brought in a a rule like that, it would be, it would result in some sort of a legal challenge, maybe under constitutional or charter rights violations challenge? Uh, It's it's possible, although I think, you know, if you make accommodations for people who have legitimate reasons for not taking the vaccine, 
then you can uh, institute, you know, frequent rapid testing. You can reassign them to uh, areas of the uh, home where uh, they're not as likely to pose a risk to residents. So, you know, I think as long as accommodations are made, uh, you know, everything that I have seen would indicate that, as Isabel says, it's it's um, it's a fit-for-work kind of requirement. And, in fact, some of our operators have instituted uh, mandatory vaccination as a uh, fit-for-work requirement for new employees. So, you know, this has been brought up before. It's been the mandatory flu vaccine or mask policy that was in effect when I was minister was upheld by the courts. Um, this government uh, decided to make an agreement not to enforce that policy uh, with the BC Nurses Union and other unions. But I think when you talk to the public, uh, the vast majority would nod their heads when asking you know, whether this should be mandatory in long-term care. Yeah, okay, why do you think it should be mandatory at the, at the risk of asking you to state the obvious, but why, why is it important? Why should it be a priority? Well, let's just take a look at the situation during the second wave of COVID in long-term care in British Columbia. We saw literally hundreds and hundreds of elderly uh, loved uh, members of families pass away in long-term care. The vaccine came along and uh, uh, this this uh, group was targeted as a priority and the number of outbreaks, the number of deaths fell dramatically. So we know how effective this vaccine is. However, we saw in some homes, like in Spring Valley in Kelowna, where the uptake was only 67% among staff, that a a further outbreak occurred, despite many of the residents having both vaccines, and 11 people, Michael, passed away. So this is not something that is over, and when you have such a dramatic improvement uh, with a vaccine uh, that has very few side effects, it just makes sense uh, to make it a requirement. Okay, speaking to Terry Lake, CEO, BC Care Providers Association, representing long-term care in the province. He's the former BC Health Minister. Uh, you heard We heard the uh, the clip we played there from BC's seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie, definitely on board with your, this idea of mandatory vaccine. And Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday saying that the province is absolutely looking closely at this. Is your organization in talks with the with Dr. Henry on this and on behind the scenes? We met with uh, Dr. Henry a couple of weeks ago, and then we had a, a brief meeting uh, uh, earlier this week. Um, and you know, she indicated well, she certainly recognized the concern uh, and indicated you know they were starting to look at this. Um, so I'm hopeful because you know prior to this there, were, there didn't seem to be any. Uh, impetus uh, to go forward with some form of mandatory vaccination requirement. So this does seem to be a bit of a change of uh, direction, and uh, we certainly welcome that. Okay, what do you say to the opponents of this on principled grounds of personal freedoms and liberties? I mean, we've seen civil liberties organizations in Canada speak out against mandatory vaccine. We've seen some medical ethicists say it crosses the line when you tell people what they have to put into their own bodies? I mean, do you see an ethical argument or barrier there? Well, uh, you know, I think most people would would argue that when you're dealing with the most vulnerable population, you you know, you know that is the situation you're going into. And so right now, people working in long-term care have to declare what their flu vaccination status is, 
what uh, their tetanus vaccine status is, what their tuberculosis status is. So we've long recognized that these are threats uh, to vulnerable people in long-term care. There's never been a threat as dangerous as COVID-19. And yet, to date, we don't even require people to declare what their vaccination status is, even though we require the status on those other diseases. So, you know, for some reason, we've been very, very slow uh, to, uh, to document uh, uptake of the vaccine. We don't even know on a site-by-site basis, Mike, how many people have uh, taken the vaccine. And that makes it very hard wow. for operators and for families of residents of long-term care to assess the real risk uh, that uh, the patients and, and their family members are under. Oh, okay, just on that point, so you're saying that long-term care facilities themselves don't even know if they're if their people are vaccinated or not, like they're not allowed to ask? Correct. Or? Correct. Uh, we are not allowed to. We, we're not privy to that information. Um, wow. And and yet, you know, for those other diseases I named, you know, people have to declare what their vaccination status is. Now, you know, the, all this information, of course, has to be held privately. We have to respect people's uh, confidentiality. Uh, but again, you know, this is just the norm in this environment and yet for covid for some reason we haven't we haven't taken it to that level which is baffling where are we at right now in terms of opening up long-term care to increased access to visitations family visits i mean we had a very encouraging briefing from officials yesterday that the vaccine rollout is going well. The, the virus is being knocked down effectively. We're getting ready to reopen. We're getting on top of this thing, and yet it seems like a, a lot of the res- there's a lot still a lot of restrictions in place when it comes to long term care. Is that correct? Well, you know, we have to remember that operators um, and employees in long term care have a far greater workload than previously because all of the you know, the infection prevention and control measures is still in place. The wearing of PPE is still in place. And so it, it would be difficult to just open up all visitation overnight to, to back into before times. Uh, so yeah. we, we do have to do it in a, in a gradual way that recognizes the extra work. The government has been very generous in, in um, uh, creating uh, the ability to hire visitor screeners. So that, that has been very valuable. But even so, Mike, it, there's a tremendous amount of work to manage visitation. We have had, you know, just the opportunity to reunite families has been just so rewarding uh, in the last few months. And so things are much, much better in terms of access. So we have to do it gradually, but I think we're very close. Uh, as I said, the, the, the weakest link is the the uptake of vaccine by staff. And we know that it is staff that have inadvertently brought this virus into long-term care. It has not been visitors. Um, uh, it, you know, it's been staff or transfers of, of uh, patients from acute care into long-term care without being tested first, which, again, is another baffling uh, policy that uh, I just don't understand. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the continuing battle over old-growth logging in British Columbia. Now, the continuing flashpoint in the dispute in the Ferry Creek region and southern Vancouver Island. We continue to see arrests to take place there as protesters trying to block old-growth logging in that region continuing to be arrested by the RCMP. We had several more arrests yesterday. Over 200 people have been arrested in that area so far, and those protests continuing. This is despite the fact that local First Nations in that area 
had requested that the government defer old growth logging for two years while the First Nations involved develop long-term sustainability plans. Uh, that request was approved by the B.C. government this week. Here's Premier John Horgan on approving old growth logging deferrals there. This is critically important, important for a, a number of reasons. Most importantly, that we have allowed as a province the title holders to make decisions on their land. Okay, some deferrals granted there for old growth logging in that region. Despite that, though, the protests and arrests continuing. Meanwhile, we see more First Nations now asking for deferrals of old growth logging in their traditional territories. Have a listen to this. This is Holsi Lem, who is a councillor with the Squamish Nation on why the Squamish First Nation wants to see a deferral of old growth logging in their territory. We felt the Squamish Nation needed to come out and state uh, very strongly, uh, publicly, uh, to the Premier and to the province, um, what Squamish Nation's position is, because we haven't seen the rhetoric from the political leadership match what happens on the ground when we're engaging with the Ministry and trying to advocate for our rights to be protected within this conversation. Okay, where is this dispute going to go from here? Let's discuss now. we got a great panel assembled for you once again for you, both sides of it. Sapora Berman is an environmental activist and writer. She was arrested herself uh, in the at the Ferry Creek blockade a little while ago. Sapora, thank you for coming on once again. Thanks for having me. Also pleased to welcome back Bill Dumont. Bill is a professional forester. He's a former chief forester with a major uh, BC company, former member of the BC Forest Practices Board. Bill, thank you for coming on again. Thanks very much, Mike, and good morning, Sapporo. Okay, pre- I appreciate both of you being here. Sapporo, let me go to you first. It was interesting to see the uh, the Premier announce a deferral of old-growth logging in that, ferry, that disputed Ferry Creek area, but the blockades have not come down, the protests have not stopped. Why is that? Well, it's uh, predominantly become because the, the deferral areas that were identified in both Ferry Creek and the Walbren um, they are important. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, uh, they're the heart uh, of what's left of the big old growth uh, there. But um, the deferrals don't include the current old growth logging and the majority of the current road building. So so in Ferry Creek, um, it's the deferrals cover about one kilometer of the planned road building out of five kilometers. And there's still 40 hectares of old growth logging permits, um, and and they're still logging. So I think as long as these uh, huge trees keep coming down, and and that logging is happening, um, you're you're going to continue to see the protests because there's so little that's left. I mean, the, what the scientists recommended was all at-risk old growth be set aside in deferrals, um, and what we saw in in Fair Creek and the Walburn is a, is about a half, a little bit more than a half of the the contiguous old growth is now deferred, uh, but the rest remains on the chopping block. Okay, Bill Dumont, your thoughts? Well, in Clackwood Sound and and the Great Bear Rainforest, where Sapora and I were both involved, once government made some decisions regarding a deferral, the actions on the ground stopped. I think what's going on now is just harassment of the NDP and and a real tragedy and the insult to the local First Nation who uh, who have made a large decision affecting their lands and we've got hundreds of these protesters refusing to uh, to acknowledge that or respect the local First Nation and uh, I it it's a strange situation uh, frankly they should leave town 
But as they do, they should go visit Carmana Provincial Park, which has some of B.C.'s largest trees and is right near Ferry Creek. It was also part of TFL 46 at one time. So that's a 16,000-hectare park within a couple miles of where the protests are. And uh, the people are just not acknowledging how ridiculous it is to carry on this battle or the so-called battle when the decisions have been made. And these are okay. these are huge decisions. Okay, Sapporo, what do you say to that? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's important to remember that the reason we have Carmona Provincial Park, as well as um, a number of watersheds in Clackwood Sound and, and the Great Bear, is because citizens stood up and, and, and protest. In fact, Carmona in 1992 was the first place I ever visited, and, and, and we had to argue and fight uh, for that area to be set aside as well. Um, and in, in, you're right. It, a lot of the deferrals that happened in the Great Bear Rainforest uh, did stop a lot of the protests and, and, and the blockade and the boycotts. Um, but that's because the deferrals covered um, all of uh, the intact watersheds. Um, and there was conversation um, to, to plan those deferrals. And, and in this case, the deferrals are not big enough. Um, I think it's a it, it, it's it's a, a it's a so it's all or nothing like like, Can, like give me a no. break. On, These people Can, have made big decisions, momentous decisions affecting their traditional territory, and you're going to dispute uh, that they didn't do enough. I mean, these people also have a right to have an income and have a job and to manage their, their territories. I think it's very Absolutely. insulting to the First Nations what's going on out there right now. Okay, Sapporo, what do you say, what do you say to that? Like, is the bottom line for you and, and, and the other protesters and activists here that all old growth logging in the province should stop, period, all of it? So uh, what we're saying is that the government needs to make good on its promise which is um, what the scientists recommended um, and which, um, of course, many First Nations are also calling for across the province. There is 1.3 million hectares of at-risk old growth identified as being critical for deferrals, identified by the government's own expert old growth panel, and, and, and scientists have now mapped it. So, no, we're not saying everything. We're not saying all of it, and certainly given that most of the old growth has already been logged and there's so little left, it's not unreasonable to say follow the science because these area, old growth areas that are left are absolutely critical to maintain the water we drink, the air we breathe, ecological oh, come stability on. Let, and biodiversity. Let's, let's, okay. let's keep but it reasonable. That's ridiculous. Hang on. Can I just address the issue as well, which, yes, which is that it's a mischaracterization to say these are just white citizens who are who are not respecting first nations wishes and i and i think you should go there and and see for yourselves because when i went there what i saw is uh didadat grandmothers and and pachadat elders like elder bill jones and and many in pachadat youth there have been pachadat citizens and youth arrested on this blockade and indigenous people are leading uh the blockades and asking more people to come and 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 help them so, so the you know it, it's it's a simplification of the issue to say that the indigenous nations have decided this is all that needs to be protected because okay. in fact there is a lot of First Nations people who are standing up today um, at Bill. the rally in the legislature and on the land. Bill, what thirty years ago, I was working with coastal First Nations in many areas, and we 
started to cooperate and work together on these issues long before government even considered it. And in all cases, there wasn't one group that I didn't deal with uh, at a table that were not asking that that the resources in their territory be respected, and and we did that. And this this uh, myth that there's somehow no old trees left in the province is simply belies all the progress that was made in the 1990s and prior in making some of the world's largest reserves of old growth forests. There's nobody else, nowhere else in the world has saved and preserved as much old growth as British Columbia. So this this suggestion that that there's nothing left and that science says we have to save everything that's left is ridiculous. That's that's not what that report says, and it's not what okay. the government is going to end up doing in these issues. Okay, guys. First Nations First Nations also hold a lot of timber harvesting rights already in BC and clearly they're going to get a lot more and and they're going to be making those decisions about what type of trees will be logged in their forests. All right, welcome back. Talking about old growth logging in British Columbia with my guests, Sapora Berman and Bill Dumont. We got calls on the open line. Sapora, let me go to you really quickly, though, to respond to what Bill said before the break there when he made the point that there's still lots of old growth that has been preserved in the province. But your thoughts? right now from the scientists report is that we have about one percent of the original forest area already protected and we also know that the 1.3 million that the independent scientists have said need to be immediately deferred across the province is only about three percent of the forest land base so no we're not talking about all of it and we're not talking about stopping all logging not even in tfl 46 teal jones um if they stop but you are here that's why you're still protesting there finish Could I finish? If Teal Jones didn't log old growth in the Fairy Creek area, according to the 2011 report, the review of TFL 46, they would have at least 180,000 cubic meters per year to log of second growth. So they have options. Uh, Setting aside these last areas of at-risk old growth will not stop the forest industry. There's a lot that can be still be done. And but okay. of course, as the premier said, we need to change from a model that's based on volume, get as much as we can, to a model that's based on value. So we okay. get more trees per job more jobs per tree cut. Bill Dumont, then we'll take a couple calls here. Go ahead. Yeah, I still think that the problem I want to know what the green community is intending to do to respect the declaration by the chiefs of those three native communities that operate in the, uh, that live uh, in that area. What's going on today with this continuing protests and harassment of police and loggers every day, every day these guys are blocking them from going to work. Uh, it, it's, it's harassment and it's got to end and it's, it's got to start showing some respect for the leadership of the communities that came out with a declaration that everyone else in this community has endorsed, the the companies, the communities, everybody is on side with them, but this this group of outliers. Okay, let's take a couple of calls here in the open line. Paul calling from Ladysmith. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, hi. Years ago, uh, we used to thin our forests out eight or ten feet apart and jump the... uh, second growth harvest by about 25 years i don't know i don't hear any talk about that anymore is that still going on what's that like selective logging uh yeah we're thinning out the forest so it's not thick as the 
hair on a dog's back and you just get Sapporo. No, no, he he means uh, are we we doing juvenile spacing to reduce the number of trees and increase the size of trees? No, we're not doing enough of that these days. That's what's been lost in a lot of the debate. We could add a lot of value to our second growth forests if we invested more public funds and private funds in making our second growth grow faster. But the the truth is that the second growth is not growing fast enough to completely stop harvesting of old growth. In some areas, it's 40% of the the harvest currently. In some First Nations logging areas, it's, it's 100%. So, you know, it was Gary Merkel the other day said it would cost billions if we stop logging all old growth, which is now what they're calling for. They got Ferry Creek. Now they want to stop all old growth logging, and, and I hear that. Sorry, that, go ahead. That's actually not true. I, mean, I think I, I said over no, and I over just heard again it from you. what we're saying: deferrals in at-risk old growth. So these are the areas that are most productive and are most important uh, for maintaining biodiversity. That are, and and those areas identified by the scientists are about 1.3 million hectares. That's not. That's not by any means. Uh, all, all the old growth in, in, in British Columbia. I mean, I think from a precautionary principle, we should stop all old growth logging, not just in British Columbia, but, but everywhere, because 90% of the world's uh, old growth and original intact forests is already gone. But I, I, I think what is very clear is that the government promised to protect at-risk old growth as identified the critical areas by the scientists. That's 1.3 million hectares, and it's not all the old growth across the province. And that process of identifying those areas with First Nations is underway. We're seeing some of it announced this morning by the Squamish Band. Okay, let's squeeze another call in here. Meg on the line in Victoria. Please go quickly. Go ahead, Meg. Okay, I just want to say, like, the ancient forests are not just wood product. They are our endangered elephants, our pyramids, our Machu Picchu. We have to see them that way. Your guest who wants to, you know, take credit for the um, old growth in Carmana, excuse me, it's only because people laid down and were in front of the tractors. I went to the Carmana. It's like a Disney world of a forest. You won't see it anywhere. Like, it's just amazing if you ever go. But the thing is... It was like we had to drive and drive and drive through kilometers and kilometers of absolute moonscape of clear cut. And the Carmana would have been that. So we have Mm -hmm. to see our old growth as this ancient history for the planet that we have to save for future generations. That's how it is. It's not wood product. Thank you, Meg. We just got a minute left, guys. So, Bill, I'll give you 30 seconds and then support 30 seconds. Okay, go ahead, Bill. I think the... Protesters at Ferry Creek have to stand down and start showing respect for the leadership of the First Nations that are there and help them develop their integrated resource management plans that will be science-based and uh, working at a table. And it's hard work. It's not as easy as, as blocking a logging truck. But that's the way we resolve things in B.C., and I okay. think that's what has to be done. Sapora Berman, 30 seconds. I think what's really exciting is that we are now hearing uh, from First Nations across the province, like the Squamish Nation yesterday, that they do want to see all the at-risk old growth in their territories protected. And so I hope we're going to see more deferrals uh, from this government um, of what they promised uh, from the expert panel, all the at-risk old growth. That's 1.3 million deferred across the province. And the fact is that 
um, we're going to see, Bill, more citizens standing up on this issue because the world okay. has changed and they know that we're in a crisis. And, and that's why we're seeing, you know, uh, hundreds of people okay. at, the, at the rally. So what thank you. Thank you. No, we're, out of, we're, out of, we're out of time. Out of time. Sorry, sorry to- Bill. We're out of time. We're out of time, guys. But I, I'm grateful to both of you for being here again. It's great every time. I look forward to having you both on the show again soon. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about vaccine incentives now. Should we give people gifts and prizes to encourage them to get the COVID-19 vaccine? That's what they're doing south of the border. All across the United States now, we see vaccine incentives on offer everywhere. Free food, free beer. Even in Washington State this week, free weed. I interviewed the director of the Washington State Cannabis Board on the show this week about their Joints for Jabs program. You get the vaccine, you get a free joint. Look at all the other stuff they're giving away. Free vacations, free sports and concert tickets to get the vaccine. And now, okay, this one's getting more and more popular. The vaccine lottery. Get the vaccine, you're entered into a lottery. This one really took off in Ohio with their Vaximillion lottery. You get the vaccine shot, you could win a million bucks in a lottery. Now, hasn't really taken off as much in Canada, but could we see a trend starting here in Manitoba? Yeah, they've announced a lottery there for vaccine recipients. Let's have a listen here to Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister. The higher the value of the incentive, uh, the more it'll influence vaccine behavior. And so today, uh, Mr. Atwell and I are here to announce that uh, nearly $2 million in uh, cash and scholarships uh, will be awarded this summer uh, to recognize Manitobans who get uh, vaccinated this summer. Okay, Brian Pallister there, the Manitoba Premier, announcing their vaccine lottery. Now, could British Columbia do something similar? Could we offer vaccine incentives here? Uh, so far, officials not very enthusiastic about the idea. Have a listen to Health Minister Adrian Dix. I don't think we need to provide incentives, but we're going to keep working to make it easier for people uh, to to book and to get their immunization. Okay, should we offer incentives in Canada, in B.C., like they're doing in the United States? Let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Dykema. Brian is the Vice President of External Affairs at CARDIS. It's a think tank here in Canada. They've come up with some interesting ideas on this topic, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Brian. Mike, thanks for having me back. These incentives seem to be really taking off south of the border, and now we see Manitoba, the first province to offer a lottery. Alberta saying this week they may do something similar. Do you get the sense that maybe this could start catching on in Canada? Sure, I, I think so, and I think I think it's not a bad idea. Vaccines work, um, or sorry, well, sh- vaccines work as well, <laughs> but the incentives also work to get more people vaccinated. So it's, a, it's sort of a win-win. We saw in Ohio after they uh, they put in their Vaximillion uh, lottery, which was a generous lottery. Um, immediately following that, the introduction of that, they saw a twenty eight percent spike in vaccination. So it's clear that incentives do work. This is in line with all kinds of data that's done all around the world. Australia's done it, uh, and other places around the world. It it absolutely works, and so I'm not at all surprised to see Manitoba doing it. I think there are better ways to do it, but um, but I'm not surprised to see that governments are going down this route to encourage us to get through to the end of this pandemic. Yeah, it was really interesting to see what happened in Ohio there, like you said, because they were the one of the first ones to come out with this Vaximillion lottery idea, and when they announced that, there was a little bit of 
I don't know, people were mocking them and laughing a little bit at it, and what a goofy idea, but man, it worked. Like like you said, I mean, there was a huge uptake on, on, on the vaccine. Do you think, though, that in Canada, maybe there's less need for incentives? Like, is there more vaccine hesitancy south of the border in the United States? Like, maybe we don't have to offer incentives here. Yeah, I mean, that's something to keep an eye on. I, I think, but this is this is one of the things that I think we need to talk about is, What's the nature of the incentive and why are we doing it? Are we doing it because we want to try to convince people to sort of offer them a bribe or are we doing it as a sort of group social effort to ensure that we get through this? And I think the vaccine type of approach is a sort of an incentive. Some people after our last interview actually emailed me and said, hey, we're just bribing people. Um, And I mean, look, that's what some people are worried about, right? That it's a bribe. I don't think so. I think what we're seeing here is... um, a need to get through the pandemic. And the best way to get through the pandemic is to have everybody vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I think if we can have anything that speeds that up, even if it's a little bit, even if the hesitancy isn't there to the point where we're not going to get the vaccines, even if it speeds it up, I still think it's absolutely worth it. So I think the other thing to note, and I think we mentioned this the last time, is that there are better and worse incentives, incentives that appeal to the broader uh, public's interest as well as individual ones. I think the vaccine uh, lotteries is the sort of like only one or two people win it, even in in Manitoba. There's not going to be a ton of winners, whereas the proposal we put forward, everybody wins. So I'd like to see more of that. And I think that sort of overcomes some of the concerns that people have about incentives. Okay, Brian, let's talk in a little bit more detail about some of the plans and ideas that you guys have come up with there. And that is to give people like a gift certificate, right? Like a gift card that they can spend at local businesses when they get the vaccine, correct? So how would that work? Right. So the, what we've actually put forward is two things. We've said, look, who's been hit hardest by this, by this pandemic? And one thing we know from data is that small businesses have been absolutely crushed by the lockdowns and the, the, the inability to get out and serve people. Big businesses like Amazon are doing just fine, but small businesses have been absolutely crushed. Another group that's had a real, real challenge, and this is going to have long-term effects, is charities. Charities have had a hard time getting out, doing the fundraising events, and their revenues have gone down by over 30%. So what we said is, look, how can we help those people while offering an incentive to people to get out and get that vaccine? And the best way to do that, we said, is to offer them uh, about three hours of the the median wage, which is about 90 bucks uh, to do that. And that would come either as a gift card that can be used at local restaurants, local vendors, things like that or a card that can be used to be given to a charity of your choice. The beautiful thing about that is you get the win in the sense that it gets people out and get vaccines. You get the win in that it helps local charities and local businesses. But I think most importantly, you get the win in the sense that everybody is seen as pulling together and we're actually working through this thing to get to the end. And and that's how vaccines incentives should work. That's how vaccines work. And I think that's the best the best approach to take in this case. Okay, have there been any? Ju- that's an interesting idea. Have there been any jurisdictions that have done something like this, like gift cards, or have any jurisdictions in the world, to your knowledge, just gone with the cold hard cash offer, like yes. pay people to get the vaccine? Yeah, they have. They have gone through. There's some of them in the states. I think in the northeast of I, I'm not sure if it's Massachusetts or somewhere in the northeast of the states, just went with cold hard cash. Um, And it works. Again, uh, cash works. I think the challenge, though, and this is what research shows, is that if you offer cold, hard cash without framing it in terms of that broader um, narrative of doing something together, people actually become suspicious of incentives. 
Um, in that sense, they're like, what are you doing? You're compensating me for something? Is this because I'm getting harmed by it? We need to avoid that. The vaccines are actually good. They actually help everybody. And so what we're saying here is don't just give cold, hard cash. Let's actually give uh, money that will actually help stimulate the, the two parts of our economy that have been really hard hit. And quite frankly, can, can allow people to see that, you know, the end is coming and we're going to be able to have a good time and go out to a restaurant. And, and I think that that's the type of thing that we want to get at. How do we encourage people through getting vaccines to sort of see the light on the other side that we'll, we'll do it? But, but at the end of the day, you're right. Uh, vaccines, even cash, they do work. Okay, would it be the idea that you guys have sketched out there with the gift cards? What if you've already received the vaccine? So you've already got your shot. I mean, would it be retroactive if you've already got the shot? You'd still get the card, the gift card? Well, I would like, well, I mean, one thing to note is that what we're suggesting is that this gets given out when you get your second shot. And in that yeah. case, there's, I think, 94% of British Columbians still haven't received their second shot. It's somewhere hovering around that area. So now's the time still to get it in. But for those 6%, I absolutely think they should get it. So I think they've done an act of social solidarity. And if they can go back with their proof of vaccine, I think absolutely that's the time to give it to them. Let's actually get that money yeah. out there and, and provide a reward for people so that, that you know, we can see what's going to happen when we're all able to get out again and, and go that way. Okay, what about the bottom line? Like, how much would this cost? So you mentioned, you know, one idea is a $90 gift card per person to get the vaccine. I mean, man, that starts to add up pretty quickly. What would that cost across the country? Yeah, it's, it would cost about, about $2 billion across the country. So two to three, wow. depending on the level you put it at. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, Mike, and it is yeah. a lot of money. Heaven knows that, you know, I don't have $3 billion in my bank account. But the thing, it has to be put into context. Think of what we're spending on CERB. Think of what we're spending on rent supports and, and subsidies and all the other stuff that happened because we're in the lockdown. We're talking, Mike, about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars here. So the $2 billion that we're suggesting, two to three that we're suggesting goes across the country, would in fact be a very small and in fact the most high value investment that government could do. Every week that we're in lockdown, every week that we're not trading, operating as normal, costs hundreds of billions of dollars we are a trillion dollar economy and any little point that doesn't get that gets cut off of gdp is going to cost us in the long run so a three billion dollar cost to get us through this is actually very very small potatoes and in fact very very good value for the long run brian it's an interesting story a lot of people are talking about these incentives now thank you very much for coming on the show today thanks i hope premier horgan was listening and uh (laughs) looking forward to talking when he puts it into place